Welcome to A World Where Living Works, stories of science and survival, bringing together our heads and our hearts to build a suicide-safer world. Talking openly about suicide is so important, but we also recognise that listening to this series may bring up some tough emotions. If so, please talk to a trusted family member, friend or local support service about how you are feeling. Visit livingworks.net and click on Find Safety for International Crisis Services. We are there to help you. This podcast is brought to you by Living Works, a network of local suicide first aid trainers in your community and communities around the world. Visit livingworks.net to find out how you can play your part in suicide prevention. Hello, my name is Kim Borodal and I'm your host today of A World Where Living Works. First of all, I'd like to acknowledge traditional owners of the beautiful lands wherever you're listening and where we're meeting today. I'd also like to acknowledge everyone out there who has been impacted by suicide, acknowledging the pain it brings to our lives, but also the desire to make positive change for all of us to live well. Today's episode is all about suicide prevention crisis lines and mental health support services. We're going behind the scenes to learn a little more about how these all-important services operate and the people working for these services, working hard each day to support those in need. I'll be talking with Joe Ball, CEO of Switchboard, who provide peer-driven support services for the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender and gender diverse, intersex, queer and asexual, LGBTIQA plus people, their families, allies and communities. Switchboard Victoria is a suicide prevention organisation and Joe is a passionate advocate on addressing the drivers of suicide for LGBTIQA plus people. Joe Ball uses the pronouns they, them and identifies as transgender non-binary. Welcome, Joe. Thanks, Kim. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Also with us today is Shari Sinwalski, Vice President of National Network's Vibrant Emotional Health and Deputy Director of the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline in the United States. Her expertise in the field of suicide prevention includes directing suicide prevention hotlines, training thousands of individuals in suicide prevention and intervention skills, and facilitating one of the nation's first support groups for suicide attempt survivors. Shari is also a Living Works Assist Trainer and Training Coach. Thanks so much for joining us today, Shari. Thanks for having me, Kim. Happy to be here. So first off, I thought it'd be really great for our listeners to just understand a little bit more about each of you, your professional background your organization's focus on suicide prevention and mental well-being. Just a bit about what's your why? How'd you come into the suicide prevention field and what sort of things have you worked on uh, up to now? Shari, perhaps we could start with you. Sure. So I work for Vibrant Emotional Health and we're lucky enough to administer the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline in the United States. So that comes um, with funding from SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. And the Lifeline's been operating in the United States for about 15 years. And the goal of the service is to provide support to anybody who's in emotional distress or suicidal crisis in the United States 24-7. And we do that through a network of crisis centers across the country. So right now we have 179 centers in the United States that have joined the the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, and they take calls from individuals in their local communities. So I began working in suicide prevention as a volunteer 
very, very early, a young age, I was actually in my undergraduate work. And, and I started this kind of coincidentally, actually, I just saw a flyer saying, you want to volunteer in our psychology building? And I was like, okay. And I just really fell in love with being able to try and be there for people in their darkest moments. You know, it's interesting when you tell somebody that you work in suicide prevention, I'm sure you all have had similar experiences that people say, oh, wow, you know, isn't that depressing or that must be hard or scary. And I really consider it to be a blessing or an opportunity that, that people are willing to, to be vulnerable and share that and to be able to, to try to help them in that place. So I guess that's to say that I, I really fell in love with the work when I started volunteering and I've been working in suicide prevention for over 25 years now. Thank you so much, Shari. That's so true. People say that all the time. I think they imagine people clutching their head in their hands in the office buildings when actually it's quite a motivating and inspiring place to walk alongside people. And Joe, tell us a bit more about you and your background. Sure. My name is Joe Ball and I'm the CEO of Switchboard Victoria. So I started with Switchboard Victoria in December 2016. And prior to coming to this organization, you know, I had a career a mixed career in the public service and before that just over 10 years of working in uh, disability service provision, mainly in housing and homelessness. And I guess my turn towards Switchboard was that I wanted to work in my own community and that I found that across many of my jobs, I was doing LGBTI work, whether it was setting up pride networks or I worked on the census and the, for the Australian Bureau of Statistics and worked on the other reporting strategy for the last census. And so I found that wherever I was going, I was sort of doing LGBTI work, LGBTIQA plus work. And so I guess for me, it was a a turn towards my own community deliberately and uh, under a belief that, you know, our organisation is a community controlled organisation, which means that everybody who works at Switchboard Victoria identifies as part of the community. We have a, a community controlled board, all our staff are, all our volunteers are, And that's a politic that I feel really passionate about, about our health being in our hands. And for far too long in the LGBTIQA plus space, we've had a lot of things done to us and for us under many pretenses of goodwill and some very ill will by psychiatry. And and I think the ethos of Switchboard is actually taking our health back into our hands and and centering ourselves as, as the best experts in our own lives and a community response to what's going on. So... For me, I think it's also about service, service to your community, which is something I feel really, really passionate about. I, one of the things I feel about Switchboard is, is there's a lot of LGBTIQA plus organisations, not a lot, um, but there is, there is some, and they have a lot of different purposes, but I'm really interested in all, all the hard work and always have been, and that's you know my background working in disability in housing and homelessness. I'm really interested in, I guess, the coalface for want of a better word, you know, the, the hard graft of working with people when they're at their most vulnerable and really, yeah, standing beside people. And I think that's the work of Switchboard is, you know, we do all the things that people don't really want to talk about on the Friday night drinks. And we do family violence prevention, suicide prevention, mental health. It's the stuff that people often shy away from to talk about, but I feel extremely proud of it, you know, that work. It's not the glitz and the glamour, but I think it's the hard graph and I really enjoy it. I mean, regarding suicide prevention, how I came to sort of have a focus, and I really built a focus of suicide prevention within Switchboard Victoria. I mean, we've been around for 29 years this year, and it's been, you know, a core part of our work. It's a reason why people call our two helplines that we run. 
And we also have a home visiting program for older LGBTI people who live in aged care or in their own homes. So there's always been a suicide prevention focus to our work. But I guess the, the turn for me of making us a suicide prevention organisation explicitly began in April 2018 when I got a phone call from one of my staff's father and he rang me to tell me that his, his daughter, my staff member, had suicided. And for me, you know, oh, there's so many things to say there about we all know what suicide does to your life um, and there's something really particular about losing someone who works within suicide prevention and someone who lose someone within your team because you're this really close-knit team who are in it together. You know, you build a bit of a shelter within your own community, within your own organisation. Um, and so it really, it really transformed. I, I mean, it's no short, it's no exaggeration to say it transformed my life. And what I learned from that experience and, and brought to Switchboard is for a long time I kept asking myself, as you always do in, when you lose someone to suicide, I kept asking myself, why did she die? Why did it happen? After a while, I started to ask the question of like what actually kept her alive. And I realized that that was the question. And that was what drives me each day is realizing that someone like herself who died, she endured a tremendous amount of discrimination in her life and, and family rejection. And still she came to community to give and actually community kept her alive and Suicide prevention kept her alive and that's what drives me each day is, is, is thinking about that is to, one, build community so that people can contribute and also to address the drivers of suicide so that people are not in that place. So that's that's my why. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing, Joe. That's that's a big why and that's sadly not an uncommon why either is really pushing so many of us and so many people in lots of communities to focus on what's supporting people to live well. So thank you. Thank you so much for that. What about if we talk about behind the scenes of the service delivery? I know that a lot of people listening, they either are working in mental health and crisis organisations or in grassroots uh, suicide prevention and mental health organisations and perhaps either are looking at their service delivery standards and what best practice they need to put in place on the front line. But then we've also got a lot of people who are supporters of the work that you both do and your organisations do who would really love to understand a little bit more how things work behind the scenes and sort of demystify the crisis lines and suicide prevention in particular and how that works. So maybe, Joe, if you could share the examples of the training frameworks and how you actually put that suicide prevention focus in place in your organisation. Like, so you said that you really shifted at that point and looked at how Switchboard operated in that way. So what did you put in place? So we, we run two helplines. One is the Victorian partner in the National LGBTI Helpline QLife. And the other is Rainbow Door, which is a Victorian COVID-19 response to mental health. And I guess for us, one of the things that was transformative in that moment was making suicide prevention across the whole organisation. And now at Switchboard, every single staff member and volunteer and board member is trained and assist. So not just the people on the helpline, you know, and, and building a community of people who've undertaking assist and now we have you know assist trainers and numerous assist trainers and mandating that within our own organization um some people do safe talk instead for various reasons that like the commitment and their involvement with the organization but it's all about having everyone being able to respond to suicide and one of the things that 
was a driver about that was recognising that there's some research around LGBTIQA plus communities and suicide prevention, which I found out, you know, more recently in researcher Dr. Catherine Johnson. And she talks about that actually teaching people to intervene on suicide teaches you to intervene on yourself. And that is really pressing in LGBTIQA plus communities. And research shows that actually in our communities, if people learn these skills, they're more likely to, you know, effectively use it on themselves than have necessarily success in the community. And that's what really drove me, I guess, for everybody to be trained up in it. So that's the, you know, our finance officer, our admin officer, the chair of the board, you know, it's just absolutely everybody. And I've heard all of those people have told me that they have used the assist program. And I think that was a big change. I think the other thing is, is what we have an ethos at Switchboard, which I think is really important that in the phone work that we do is that we work as a team and we consider this, uh, you know, a feminist response and a feminist framework is that the person taking the call is never alone in the work. And so we have a, have a process where the person can put the caller on hold and turn to the team of people that are in the phone room and have a conversation about what we can do next. And of course, there's some things there about, you know, gaining the, the confidence of the caller so that they can handle the pause and things like that. But I think that was something really important to us is recognising that not putting all that pressure on the individual staff member or volunteer who's responding to that caller and actually, you know, working as a team and that it's a team responsibility, which I think is fantastic for the caller themselves, but is also a preventative strategy to not feel like all the weight and responsibility is on that individual. And I think that's a big thing that's changed for us is about collectivising the responsibility for suicide prevention. And that goes from the individual work we work to the advocacy I do to state and federal governments is to say this is a collective responsibility. You know, it's not our fault in our LGBTI communities that we have such high rates of suicide. It's not our fault. And actually, if you look at the drivers, it's a community collective response and we need to address it that way. I love that. Thanks, Joe. It's so great to hear that everyone from the finance officer to the person on the end of the crisis phone line is getting that suicide first aid training and that you're hearing them apply it in their, in their day, day-to-day lives. So that's a really great initiative. And Shari, how do you manage that with 179 lifelines across the country? So how do you take that service delivery standards and implement that ethos as, as Joe was referring to in Switchboard in such a massive organisation? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because many of our crisis hotlines existed before the lifeline existed. You know, we've got crisis hotlines in the United States that have been around for gosh, more than 60 years now at this point. And so there was a lot of good work being done in crisis intervention and suicide prevention in the United States before the lifeline even came into fruition. However, in a lot of ways, it was being done in, you know, in silos and in pockets, and it hadn't been really necessarily evaluated or unified to, to understand how or if it was working. Being funded through SAMHSA, it allowed us to have some evaluation of what was happening on the crisis lines and to develop best practices. And so we very much worked in collaboration with our crisis centers to develop really an iterative process for learning what was happening on those crisis lines organically, kind of from the start before the lifeline was there, 
what were some of the areas that were going really well on the lines? And maybe were there areas that we could do better and crisis lines could do better? And so when we would get the results of our evaluations, we worked very closely with Dr. Maddie Gould, who did a lot of our evaluations, continues to do um, evaluations for us, Dr. Brian Mashara and others. And as we would learn, you know, what they were learning and hearing on our evaluations, then we would very quickly take that information back to our centers so that we could make changes and make improvements. And so we've been really proud of that iterative process and being in collaboration with the centers. Some of the things that we we learned from that, you know, it was interesting when crisis centers first started, you know, I was working at a crisis center before the lifeline started. And, and there was, um, even in the field of suicide prevention, there were people who would ask things like, well, you know, do crisis lines really work? And if somebody's really thinking about suicide, are they really going to even call a crisis hotline? You know, there were kind of these hesitations or, or, or considerations that people would have that, you know, wondering if, if, if it was even a method that they would want to fund and support in terms of supporting people in crisis. And I think what we learned from our early evaluations was that, yes, very seriously, suicidal people were calling people who were, had definitely sometimes even taken action to take their own lives. And there was really great things happening when people were calling the lines and and great interventions were happening. But we also learned that, um, there were some things that we could do better. You know, so some of the centers had been around for a really long time and had really great training programs in place. Others were kind of more new, didn't necessarily have um, as established training in place. And so we put standards in place that centers have to meet, but we also allow them some flexibility and individuality as to how they do that in their own local communities and in their own regions. So For example, we have certain assessment that they have to do on a call to determine if a person is at risk and if so, how safe might they be in that situation and and what might they need to do to try to establish more safety. And we have, so we have our, what we call our suicide risk assessment standards that came from our evaluations. We also have what we call our imminent risk guidelines, helping to guide people and make decisions. Okay, we think that if this call ends, this person may not be safe. So what is the best thing that we can do to try to support them? And, and our imminent risk guidelines are, are based on philosophies such as collaboration and least intrusive intervention and really trying to work with the person who calls us to find ways that, that they feel most comfortable to be able to find a way to feel better. Because we, we know that if they can feel better and feel some hope that that's when they're most likely to stay safe. So that's sort of the way that we've worked in collaboration with our centers, but we also have committees that guide our work as well. So we have three different committees that, that guide the work of the Lifeline. We have our steering committee, which is sort of focused on kind of business and capacity issues. We have our standards training and practices committee. And so that's really talking about those best practices and constantly refining them and, and learning what we what we take from our evaluations and importing that out to the centers. And we also have our lived experience committee. So what you were saying, Joe, really resonated with me in terms of um, within the suicide prevention field, there was also a dynamic for many years, probably even before I was born, frankly, of kind of this us and them in terms of the, the helper and the, and the person who needed help. And, you know, there was not necessarily a lot of openness in terms of people speaking about their own personal lived experiences of suicide. And when the Lifeline was created, our founder, our director, Dr. John Draper, 
you know, immediately kind of recognize that if we're really going to make this a successful endeavor, we need to have people here at the table who have this lived experience and can guide our work. And so we're also always taking input from that committee and using that as we're developing our best practices so that we're looking both at the clinical research, but also the practical application and the impact that it might have in somebody's life. Fantastic. Thank you. Joan, did you want to say something? Yeah, I, I want to take comment about, you know, I think that we always need to ask ourselves whether it's working. I think that's really important in this space and then to be driven by evidence-based and self-reflexive practice. And, you know, one of the big questions is why have an LGBTIQA plus phone line? You know, there are other services that LGBTIQA plus people can call and do call um, in Australia. And why have a specific phone line? And I think the world over, there's LGBTIQA plus phone lines. And actually, they've been the cornerstone of the service sector for our community. And I think it speaks to the needs within our community around social isolation and rejection and the need to form community that is not about your direct family, but about finding chosen family. There was a recent piece of research in Australia called LGBTI Lives in Crisis, which was a research done with our lifeline in Australia and QLife, the service we work with. Um, that we're a partner in. And one of the things they found is that, you know, people in our community want choice around, they want a specialist LGBTIQA plus phone line, and they also want to use mainstream services where they're culturally safe. And there's a lot of work to be done in Australia about making other phone lines culturally safe. And unfortunately, way too often on our phone line, we actually hear about people having a bad experience on other helplines because the individual phone worker hasn't been trained in cultural safety for our community. And when people are so vulnerable to be misgendered and even when they're corrected not that they're gendered to not be accepted on the phone line, you know, it's such a terrible time to be sort of, I guess, fighting with someone who, who should be helping you. So, you know, in our work at Switchboard, we, you know, try and where possible to capacity build within other phone line services. And that's one of our, our missions there because we know that our community needs to be able to use both um, and all, mainstream and specialist but we do know that people want to talk to people who understand and, and they want to feel that connection and that's really important and it makes a huge difference when someone rings up and they just know that that person is LGBTIQA+. And they don't need to have those basic educative conversations. But in order for that to be a real experience, we have to train our volunteers in LGBTIQA plus peer work because just because you identify as part of the community doesn't mean you necessarily understand the whole community. Like, what, what I'm really passionate is peer work is something that you learn. It's not something you intrinsically know. I mean, how would someone know necessarily what it means to be a brother boy or sister girl, which is the trans terms in Australia for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, if you don't identify or have lived within those communities? So, you know, we, we do training around that. We do cultural training uh, for all our volunteers around Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. So I think, you know, that's, I guess, my contribution about, like, why do we do LGBTI phone lines? and and then, you know, within our Rainbow Door work, our newest phone line, we have a reference group. And the reference group, we really think about the sheer diversity within our own community and don't assume that diversity is just being LGBTIQA+. It's all the intersecting identity. So our reference group, you know, has representatives who are people um, living with a disability, people who are and or Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, people who are older. That's a really important, you know, there's a big difference in our community, like between people who grew up under criminalization and younger people today. So I think, you know, we try and have a reference group that 
that really drives the diversity and in, in intersection and to recognise, you know, diversity is everybody's work, even LGBTIQA plus community groups. I love that research actually about you need both mainstream and um, LGBTIQ plus and that choice is important, choice and cultural safety and building that capacity of all of the services. And also I think it links back to about what you, Shari, was saying earlier about the previously the helper and helpee is actually having people work in your organization who identify with a diversity of experiences is also enabling people to see themselves in that service. So yeah, that was really useful. Thank you. And Shari, what about in terms of what Joe was saying about building that capacity and uplifting both on a diversity front and a um, suicide prevention front? How have you implemented that across the lifeline? Yeah, that's a great question. So very similarly in the United States, we also have some specialty hotlines for various populations. We work very closely with the Trevor hotline to both provide training for the counselors that are on our lines and and actually Trevor's represented on all of our different um, committees as well. But we're actually working really closely right now to see how can we even offer more to individuals who call into the lifeline and may want to be connected to somebody that they could even more closely relate to. So somebody perhaps that's working on the Trevor line. And right now that could be offered through a warm transfer, but we're also looking at to see if that's something that might want to be an option right from the very beginning when somebody calls in so that it's an option that they could just go straight to the Trevor project. So that's one of the ways that we've been trying to meet people where they are and and give them a choice in services so that they can feel most comfortable. Because as Joe mentioned, it's it's really important that people don't have to, I guess, for lack of a better word, go through more red tape when they're in crisis. You know, they want to be able to feel welcome and comfortable and be able to be vulnerable in whatever way that means for them. Just taking it back to basic, Shari, what people listening today might not actually understand what sort of trainings in place for someone as a, as a crisis hotline caller. So if I was a lifeline counsellor or whatever term that you use, do I have to be a psychologist? Am I a health professional? Like who are you recruiting and what sort of skills and training and qualifications do people have to work in on a crisis line? Yeah, that's a really great question. So no, or yes, I guess it could be the answer to that question. Uh, You might be a psychologist, you might be a volunteer, you might be a mother, you might be a student. Um, There's many different things that somebody who's answering the line might be. Because we have different centers that are part of the lifeline, the folks that are answering calls might be different from center to center. So some centers in some states in the United States might be part of a bigger behavioral health system, for example, and they might have requirements that somebody has a master's degree in counseling or social work or something like that. And then we also have centers that are different in different communities where they might be primarily staffed by volunteers. Um, So different centers look different in terms of the requirements of who may be answering the calls if you're looking at it from a degree sort of perspective. I think what's common um, amongst anybody who answers the lines is that they have had a base training and that they've been screened to be able to be empathic and non-judgmental and to be able to listen to people's 
perhaps really intense, deep feelings um, when they're in crisis and, and be able to do that calmly and, and in a supportive way. The training that is offered for centers also varies a bit because the centers are allowed to create their own training packages as long as they meet the standards that I've mentioned. So on average, I'd say most of the trainings are probably at least 50 hours long, but they could be longer than that in some communities. Some of the centers are offering other types of services, and so the trainings that they have to go through may be more extensive. As the result of some of the evaluations that we, we did that I mentioned earlier, we recognized that some of the newer centers maybe were looking for some more standardized training that they could kind of plug and play, so to speak. And so we did make the assist training available across the network. So any center who's part of our network has an opportunity to go through and assist T4T um, to send two of their staff members or volunteers to a, a T4T. And then we support them in making those workshops available within their center. So at this point, the majority of our centers have chosen to do that. And we've done some evaluation on that work too. So again, that kind of that iterative process that I, I've told you about. And, and we've seen um, that centers who have their counselors through the assist training. We've seen some, some good results from those evaluations, specifically counselors who were at those centers, their callers at the end of the call seemed to be rated as less depressed, less overwhelmed. We also noted that some of the results of that study indicated that those counselors were more inclined to explore reasons for living and to talk more about reasons for dying. So certainly saw some evidence of that training coming through in the results of their calls as well. Fantastic. And T4T, so that's training people within your specific organization or lifeline to then train the rest of your organization. So it's a yeah. peer training process. Yeah. Thanks for pointing that out, that lingo there, Kim. T4T is a training for trainers. And so we really want to try to build capacity within the local communities. So rather than just training people and kind of leaving, we want them to be able to continue to train their staff and members of their community so that there's really resources within the community to help people who are in need. That's great. And Joe, is that the same for Switchboard, both in relation to qualifications and training for most of your staff and volunteers peer support or have other qualifications and what sort of training do you put in place for them? Yeah, so over the two phone lines, there's a different requirement. So the Rainbow Door has a short-term case management function to it. So that's done by paid staff and it has a focus on family violence and suicide prevention. And in order to work in the family violence space, that's not a role for volunteers and requires a certain level of skill. And, you know, it's a lot of people who are working in the social work and have the relevant family violence experience. However, I would add to that, you know, in our community, the research shows that you know, family violence is higher than in non-LGBTIQA plus communities and that family violence is a driver of suicide, that a lot of LGBTIQA plus people, you know, end their lives as a way to escape rural communities or families who reject them. And, you know, that's a really sad reality, but it is, you know, suicide is driven by highly by family rejection. And a lot of that time, that family rejection is actually family violence and we're talking about, so there's a correlation, you know, between our different work when we talk about doing family violence work and doing suicide prevention. Um, so that's the rainbow door work and that has certain level of requirements. The Q Life work we do working nationally on the national service is 
people don't have to have a professional background. We absolutely attract some students um, that, you know, want the experience of being on the phones, but it is a volunteer role. They have a paid team leader who's qualified and supports them during every shift that they're on. But as a volunteer, they receive 10 days of training. And on top of that 10 days of training, they get the two-day assist training. And they receive uh, regular group-based supervision and immediate supervision like in the phone room um, after they take a call and that reflective practice. But I really, Chari, I really, it was the, uh, the affinity I had, you know, it's really interesting about phone lines because there's so much commonality I always find. And ultimately what you are looking for is somebody who has, who is empathetic, who's able to listen, who's self-reflective, um, who's willing to learn, who's able to learn, you know, able to hear, critique and um, and change and work within that team environment, uh, you know, that people can have all the qualifications in the world, really. And certainly people come to us to volunteer who have, you know, psychology degrees um, and they want to use it for a short time in volunteering or part of their, you know, time is volunteering. But at the end of the day, if, if they're not able to learn and they're not able to listen, um, you know, somebody who doesn't have any degree could actually be far better because the ability to listen is that key component. And it's something that I think we take for granted that we can all listen, but actually we have to learn to listen. You know, that's why we talk about active listening and, and, and there's a particular way to listen when you do suicide work. And that's what, you know, assist teaches us is what you are listening for. And I would just add that in the assist, which listeners would may not be aware, but, you know, switchboard was involved in, the development of the first ever LGBTI cultural safety assist training. So we have been involved in adapting assist to make it culturally relevant to our community. And that's been a fantastic process because at the end of the day, the base, you know, I'm such a believer in this, the assist system, um, but there's certain things within the training that don't necessarily speak to our community. Some of it was the videos for starters that needed to be remade for those who've done the assist training. You know, they do have a really heterosexual focus and don't necessarily speak to the nature of our community where a lot of suicide interventions happen from chosen family, not from necessarily biological family. And so, you know, we've been part of giving advice about changing those videos. We've adapted the training and we feel really proud of that, of that work that we've done to make assist relevant to our community. And I think that's, yeah, I'll just leave it there. I just feel really proud of that work because I think the, the tenets of the program are, are fantastic and we've proved it time and time again that one of the things we realised after we trained everybody in ASSIST is that our recording around suicide went up. We were recording that we had far higher suicide calls and that's because people were learning how to listen in a new way and to hear the signs and I think that's why I feel so committed to ASSIST. Now I feel like I'm giving a hard sell but I feel passionate about it because I saw that massive difference within like the first group that went through of people to assist, I saw immediate change of suddenly there was a spike in our recording of suicide calls, but it was just because we were learning a different way to talk about it. That's amazing. I am always motivated when looking a little deeper, when you see the statistics of um, different incidents of calls going up. And I remember going to training years ago where they said, never be disheartened or freaked out about someone calling and talking about suicide because they've called you and they're talking about it. So that's a good thing. So when you see these numbers go up, like I know, you know, with COVID, 
we've seen increases in calls, but I'm just so glad that people who are anxious about the situation are actually making the calls. So it's really interesting to hear that after the training, you saw those incidents go up, which means people are doing that deep listening, as you say. Shari, what about in Lifeline, the debriefing and supervision aspects that Joe was mentioning about how does that work in your organization? Yeah. Again, it happens individually at the centers in an immediate way. Certainly the Lifeline does a lot to try to support centers in that work. You know, we've talked about training already, but one of the things that our evaluations have showed is that there's not necessarily a difference between the quality of work that a volunteer might provide versus somebody who might be degreed or a professional in the field. But it's often more about how, how much time they've spent doing this, which is often, I think, in my mind, equated to confidence and their kind of ability to be calm and comfortable in these situations. And, and that does come a lot from training. And, and certainly, um, assist training helps with that in the unique way that it's provided, allowing people to kind of first and foremost, talk about their own personal experiences with suicide, because I think that being able to kind of process those and, and kind of reconcile where they are personal with issues related to suicide also can help people be perhaps more calm and confident in listening to where others are at. So I think training is a big part of, of wellness and, and kind of being able to have people be able to know how the issue may personally affect them. So before they even start, I think is really helpful. But in terms of how we support the centers, you know, we try to make opportunities available for centers to have a peer network. Um, with each other. So, you know, one of the big things that we do is we try to network all of these 170 centers so that they're able to connect with other organizations that are doing that same work and to learn from each other. So that's one of the ways that we do that. And we do many webinars where we're doing different types of training and, and there's a focus on wellness on some of those, especially since COVID. So, you know, there was such a big change, I think, for all of the centers and many of them working to go remote and seeing increases in calls and, and just so many changes so quickly. And so I think that we've done a lot since then to support the centers. And sometimes it makes its way in terms of we create tip sheets and kind of lessons learned from the network, but we also do kind of what we call our office hours. So every other Friday, we allow anybody who wants to just show up in a Zoom room to, to kind of come and talk and debrief and talk about what's going on with them and how is the work affecting them or their center. We've actually luckily been just recently, we received some funding that's allowing us to actually have an entire position, a program manager for wellness. And so their role is to help to provide technical assistance to the centers, but also find ways to kind of make it scalable. So a lot of our centers are so caught up in the work that they're doing that it's hard to take a time out sometimes and, and create some of the fun things or the, the wellness activities that are important to be able to provide for their center. So we're hoping to create some opportunities that they can kind of take and plug in and use in their centers if they haven't had the opportunity to focus on it with the busy work that they're doing. So those are some of the ways that we've tried to emphasize and focus on wellness within, within the, the network. We also do it in other ways, though, in terms of just like being careful to provide some guidance to the centers, just in terms of like, what should the work environment look like in terms of metrics and how much occupancy, for example, is the word that's used, should a, a counselor have when they're taking calls, how much time in an eight hour shift 
Should they actually be on the phone, you know, and how much break time do they need and debriefing time and training? So there's other ways that, that looking at wellness is important that is a little bit different than the clinical aspects, but just actually kind of the, the numbers and the work. Because people, when call volume is happening and, and there's so many calls coming in, we want to take them all, but we also need to recognize that individuals need to be able to take care of themselves and take breaks too, to be able to get back. Definitely, particularly now when most of the people who are supporting others also are trying to do their best to cope with the COVID environment and whatever's going on in their own lives and their own environment. Absolutely. Joe, is there anything you'd like to add about the staff wellness angle and how you take care of people and foster that team sense at Switchboard? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that I learned early on when I started at Switchboard was why people came and volunteered with us. And, you know, we have this quite unique experience in the volunteering space where we are absolutely inundated with people who want to volunteer with us, which is quite surprising to people. People always think we might be begging people to volunteer with us, but, you know, we'll open a training course and we'll, within the first couple of days, like hundreds of people, I'm not exaggerating, hundreds of people will want to come and volunteer. And around a lot of other type of volunteering, that's quite foreign to people like who are volunteer coordinators. And what we realise with the people who come and volunteer with us is... Um, I made a lot of assumptions about who they were as people. And look, they're absolutely a mixed bunch of people, but but there was a reoccurring theme about that people weren't necessarily really out or connected to being LGBTIQA+. Like a lot of people came to us to actually find community. And I assumed, and one might assume, that they were people who were really active in community and wanted to give back. But actually the dynamic was that a lot of people... They haven't found community yet and didn't relate necessarily to what the broader LGBTI community was. They didn't relate to the party scene or, yeah, like elements of what they thought it meant to be gay, for example. But what they did relate to was the warmthness of like service and giving back and coming into community with people. And so given that, it's become a priority to make sure we, we do build a community, that Switchboard is a community. And, and that includes, you know, really thinking about, you know, how we run our training, how we run our, how we, how we hold people, how we run social events, you know, and understanding that people, you know, that's, that's key to them. They want to connect to the other phone workers because one of these, it can be like an isolating or, you know, you do a training course and you do it with 25 other people. That's what happens at Switchboard people go through and they really consider themselves the class of this year. Like they, we do like three or four a year, but they, they class number, blah, blah, blah. And then they form a group where they, every year they set up a Facebook group and they become the class of switchboard and they have a Facebook group where they have a friendship as people who went through and people catch up um, externally and socially and people make lifelong friends. And I must say that two of the women who were really involved in the foundation of Switchboard back in 1991, after marriage equality, they married. They met at Switchboard. Um, They met during the training course of 1992. And when it was legal in Australia recently, they married. So, like, I think um, not that I ever pitch that you come come to Switchboard to meet your life partner, but I think that people absolutely make, like, lifelong friends and really connected friends that share a commonality a lot of our phone workers are introverted people. Um, I don't like. I don't know how that fits across other phone lines, but then you know they're people that are drawn to this kind of work. They're a really special group of people because it's not work that 
everybody wants to do. It's not work that you get badges of honour for doing. You know, one of the things I say about it is you don't win awards for doing that work, being a volunteer peer worker on a phone helpline. The only people who really actually know what you do, because it's confidential and anonymous, you can't go around spreading it in a small community like the LGBTIQ plus community that you sit on the phones. Otherwise, it's a prevention from people calling. So the work is very private. The volunteering is very private. And the only people who actually really know what you do is other phone workers. So we work really deliberately to build that community. And that's been a real struggle during COVID because we can't come together in space together. So we've had to create those Zoom communities and regular catch-ups and a specific Facebook group for everybody rather than just the classes. And we have to actively, you know, speak to that community idea that we are a community of people. I mean, on top of that, we have the more formal supports. And I spoke about that earlier, which is that regular supervision that people come in and do group supervision. And we're doing that group supervision via Zoom right now. And there's also, we also provide people one-on-one supports. Like if someone takes a very particular challenging call, you know, we might offer them one-to-one, once-off sessional support with our counselling supervisor who works for us, our clinical supervisor. So I think it's a mixture of those things, understanding that, you know, you need to use a therapeutic model and a clinical model, but you also need to build community. Great. Thank you. I'm also seeing some opportunities for maybe like a novel or a movie script about love and the crisis line. <laughs> we'll, we'll take it's that. It's so funny. You were talking about all crisis lines having similarities, Joe, and I can also think of some very similar <laughs> stories in some of my days at the various lines too. So yeah. <laughs> there might be several themes that yeah. we have in common. <laughs> That's the next series. We'll do that. <laughs> um, so I thought it'd be nice for the final question to just come full circle to what we were talking about, right? at the start, which was that people often sometimes make the wrong assumption that working in suicide prevention and working with on crisis lines and things like that is depressing work and it's obviously got its challenges, but it's also some of the most motivating and inspiring work that you can do and really uh, that sense of pride. And I guess what I'd really like to end with is a reflection from both of you about something that in your work or your exposure to this area of work that you've been particularly proud of or something that's really stuck with you when you look back at it. I think I, I always remember this moment where this man came up to me in a public space and he said to me after I'd been speaking about like what is switchboard and doing a public address and he said to me, uh, you made me a better boyfriend. And he wasn't talking about me personally. He was talking about the organisation and it always stuck with me about that the experience he had as an individual that, you know, yes, he did the work on the line, but the skills that he learned through being a peer supporter with Switchboard have stayed with him his whole life. And I've heard that story a number of times, like the skills you learn to listen to other people, to be respectful, be empathetic, be non-judgmental. Those skills are something that don't stop when you put the phone down and come off shift hopefully, um, they're skills that you actually take with you. And I think about that, you know, I work as a custodian of an organisation that started in 1991 that has built a community of people who are out there in my community having respectful conversations, understand what consent is, have been trained in assist now, can recognise the red flags of family violence. And I feel immensely proud to have played the years that I have in this role of building that community of people. Like literally we have trained thousands of people since 1991 and they are all out there. So 
I think that's what's really great about the work you do on the shift is really important, but the transformative experience you have as a phone worker stays with you for your life. Yeah, so it's, it was that moment where that man said that to me that drew my attention to how important this work is, is not just for the caller, but for us as a phone worker. And I feel like that is absolutely the case for me as a CEO of Switchboard, that this job has made me a better person, undoubtedly, and that I have been shaped by those who use our service and those who work and volunteer in our service. And that's what gets me up every morning, I think, is that I know that I'm building a more resilient LGBTIQA plus community that can respond to suicide, but also that every day I am being changed for the better. I absolutely love that. Thank you, Joe. And Shari, what would you like to share? Tough act to follow that one. I know. I should have went first. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I had mentioned that when the Lifeline first started, we formed our various committees and one of them was the Lived Experience Committee. And this was before I was working for the Lifeline. So I was actually at one of our crisis centers, Dee Dee Hirsch when the Lifeline released some guidelines on incorporating lived experience into the work um, that the crisis lines were doing. And now, you know, we hear about lived experience a lot, and there's a lot of people who are talking about their own personal experience. But it was only 13 years ago when that document came out. And at that time, people were not talking about their own lived experience in a very public way. And one of the things that the Lifeline recommended, you know, they, they had sort of like a focus group of folks who had survived a suicide attempt or who had um, family members that had struggled with suicidality. And one of the resounding recommendations that came out of that group was that there needed to be opportunity for people who had this experience to come together. And one of those ways potentially was through a support group. And so when I was at Dee Dee Hirsch, Dee Dee Hirsch was the first suicide prevention center in the United States and has a, a long reputation and history of sort of the founding fathers of suicidology created this, this crisis center. And as such, we're always looking for new and better innovative ways to support people. And so when that recommendation came from the lifeline, I was charged with, okay, let's try to do this. Let's try to create a support group for people who have survived a suicide attempt. And, you know, there's support groups for almost everything these days, you know, and at that time there really wasn't anything happening in that field. And certainly in terms of anything that had been evaluated to show if it was helpful or not. And there was actually people in the field of suicide prevention who were not so supportive of the idea people who said, you know, well, is that safe? And, you know, might people influence each other negatively if they're considering suicide or have had thoughts of suicide? Might there be some sort of what what they call in the field, contagion effect there? Could it have a negative consequence? Um, And we said, well, it might, but there's nothing to show that it does until we try, right? And so we created this group and we knew that the um, evaluation of it would be really important. And so we made sure to put in um, evaluation to let us know exactly how the impact that it was having. And I guess to say now here we are, that group started in 2011 after some 
some serious prep planning and, and research and um, started in 2011 and it's been running ever since. Um, and there's been hundreds of people that have gone through it. And there's been an evaluation that shows that actually no, this group has not shown anybody to feel worse or more suicidal, quote unquote, but actually people are feeling more hopeful less, less desire for suicide, more resilient. I mean, all of the outcomes that, that we would hope to see. And not only that, but we've created a curriculum. I still work in this way with them. (laughs) So we created a curriculum to train other people to implement these, these support groups in their communities, including in Australia. And so I think that I remember one woman um, who attended that group on the last night she brought these little ornaments that were shaped like keys and she gave one to everybody who was in the group. And she said, this is a key. And it said, it said secret on the key. And she said, um, when I came to this group, I felt like I had a really big secret that I couldn't share with anybody else in the world. And, and coming to this group provided me the key to this secret that I was holding inside and that I've been able to share. And, and she just talked about how life-changing it was for her. And so I could talk about a lot of stories like that, but that one in particular gives me goosebumps when I share it, that just creating a safe place for people to talk about their common experiences can be so powerful and helpful for people. And, and I know that lives have been saved through that group. That's extremely powerful. Thank you so much. I can yeah. picture the key and, and the fact that that's now happening around the world is just an absolute testament to to the work and the progress that's happened over the years. And it's all about that safe space to be heard and see yourself and be understood. And I think it's been so great to talk to both of you about this. I'm sure I could talk for hours and hours, but it's late and early wherever you may be. So we might wrap it up there just to let the listeners know too that if they want to learn more about the work that you're doing is to go and check out the Lifeline website in the States and also Switchboard Victoria and get in touch with Shari and Joe's teams if you want to learn more and hear about the work that they're doing and get involved. Thank you so much to both of you for talking with me today. I've really enjoyed it and I can't say enough about how good it is to share your reflections and insights with the listeners today. Thank you, Kim. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. And I've really liked doing this with you, Shari, as well. Yes, it was so great to meet you. If you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love you to subscribe on the usual channels, write a five-star review, and most importantly, share it with your family, friends, and colleagues on social media, tagging Living Works. This podcast is brought to you by Living Works a network of local suicide first aid trainers in your community and communities around the world. Visit livingworks.net to find out how you can play your part in suicide prevention. A reminder that if this episode has brought up tough emotions for you, talk to a trusted family member, friend or local support service about how you're feeling. Visit livingworks.net and click on Find Safety for International Crisis Services. We are there to help you.